4: Oh man.
3: Oh man it's
4: Behind the bastards, the podcast about people who aren't good by people who are good. This week, our person who are good is Jamie Loftus. How, how are you doing?
5: I'm doing good. It's real hot. I'm I'm excited for the episode.
4: It is hot. Uh, But you know what a random lady told me once in Georgia? What? When you feel the sun on your back, that's just Jesus smiling at you.
5: (laughs) Wow, that's that's a good positive spin for global warming. Mm -hmm. I like this just global warming. There's a Jesus good chance that lady didn't hard. believe
4: in global warming, so <laughs> <laughs> she was a white lady in rural Georgia. So there's there's not a lot of ways that story's going to end super happy. Um, you know what
5: a white lady in rural Georgia told me once when I tried that? to special order a hot dog. What was that? She said, "This isn't Burger King. You don't get it your way. Fuck off." See, yeah, I love she that gave lady. Me- I love her, too. I'll bet that lady's based as hell. she gave me a gnarly hot dog. She gave me a really gnarly (laughs) hot dog. It was wet.
4: (laughs) That's what you get for bringing your goddamn big city bullshit to her her wholesome small town hot dog, whatever it was. (laughs) Uh,
5: uh, I came in too hot. I was swinging my dick around at a a diner. You're swinging your dick
4: around at a hot dog shop, which is basically full of dicks already. So nobody's impressed.
5: Yeah, like, I, I, it was disrespectful you go, of me, and you I go was swinging, right to be told
4: off. You go swinging your dick around at a Euro place. Well, that's... Pretty much perfect because a hero is basically a pocket, <laughs> you know. It's, it's the most. True. You can, there's, yeah, it's it,
5: it's easy to start uh, mm-hmm. having sex with the hero.
4: It is very. It's incredibly easy. A hero or a hero, both of them very easy to fuck. Oh, um,
5: both very fuckable. Yeah, yeah.
4: Although you have more opportunity to get like some hip work in with the hero because the hero, it's just going to come out the sides, you know.
5: Wait, I'm trying to visualize this. Yeah. It's gonna come out the sides.
4: As long as you're fine with penetrating the giro, right? Pushing through that that back, uh, yeah. That that's back not layer. We have a yeah, very long then it'll it'll stay today. in okay. Robert, especially Robert. if you like hold the edges so can, up, whereas the the hero, it's just gonna because it's an open sided <gasps> sandwich, right? Hi. So that's
5: okay. The open sidedness yeah, of it. Yeah, but I understand you're not gonna you're, you're not gonna
4: punch part. your dick through the bread of the hero though, because you can just fuck straight through, and they're usually longer than anybody but you know what's, what's that guy what's that fellow? the guy who was really wilt chamberlain unless you're wilt chamberlain then you might then get you off might. <laughs> of
5: wilt what <laughs> the fuck <laughs> i learned who wilt chamberlain was through a cartoon network cartoon same only because i yeah yeah foster's home for imaginary friends
4: oh i think i learned about him from an episode of wasn't he? he was a guest on scooby-doo right
5: Will? Ch- <gasps> yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. It was the mystery
4: of the man with the enormous cock.
5: <laughs> okay. <laughs> the script. Okay. I, I, once again, the script is really long. It just is almost sixteen
4: thousand words. Yes. Hmm?
5: Just one more thing. There, I. I'm not. I'm. I'm down to fuck a hero sandwich with a, with a strap on. Sure. Good for sure. Absolutely. Without doubt. Absolutely. And. And I think it's just like about finding the right shop in the right. And the the
4: right hero, you know, you know, you don't want to be like pressured if you're not feeling it in the moment. Maybe somebody puts like, like the, like, like uh, uh, jalapenos, but not like the pickled kind that, that go really good with lettuce. And you're like, well, I don't really want like just a straight up jalapeno on this. I want like that texture change you get when they're pickled, you know.
5: And there's just some food you don't want on your crotch. It's like, have you ever accidentally. Horseradish. Right. Yeah. Have you ever accidentally put Doctor Bronner's soap on your privates? You're oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my god! After one shaving for worst- a party
4: once, horrible.
5: No one told me.
4: No, I didn't. Bad There's decision. The bottle,
5: the bottle, famously has too many words. I'm not going to read that, no. but there are a couple of very important words. Don't put them directly onto your onto that your peppermint, vagina. That or peppermint
4: shit—it burns like the god. Yeah. It's I like stopped
5: fucking listening. Oh, I stopped listening when Jamie said it was wet. Mm-hmm. I was well. showering with someone, Robert, and I did that, and then I had to play it off. Like oh, <laughs> <no>. it was <laughs> humiliating. Oh man. And then it's like he absolutely he saw what I had done, mm-hmm. but I couldn't admit my mistake. I was too no, proud.
4: this feels good. Feels like a, I a, want to stay here. Mm, Let's
5: have breakfast. Yeah. It was, I,
4: I enjoy uh, the feeling of my my junk getting burned by a schizophrenic man's uh, soap.
5: I <laughs> Horrifying. Once again, if any, I'm if glad it I just feels too nice just to say it out loud. If, I've never said if, it out loud before. I'm, I'm I, glad
4: we're having this five minute long conversation before I have introduced <laughs> the topic of the episode.
5: But before you yeah, get into yeah, yeah. that, I just want to say that somebody please clip this out for TikTok for me. For me, yeah, no let's comment. become TikTok stars. Jamie, Yeah. how
4: do you, speaking of burning genitalia, do you think <laughs> about goop often?
5: I, yes, I've been thinking about goop quite a bit lately. Yeah. Not, yeah. And not the Gwyneth, now, not of you, the Gwyneth flair.
4: I, I was speaking of the Gwyneth one, but you, yeah, goop, oh. Gwyneth Paltrow's like like snake oil brand. Or you think about, you you think were, about he, QAnon yes. a lot? Q just came back on, right, after the repeal of Roe v. Wade started posting. That's not great.
5: Yeah, Is no. Is that on your mind no. a little bit? No, uh, a little alarming.
4: And, and literal Nazis, those are probably on your mind occasionally, right?
5: They're on my mind far more than I'd like to admit.
4: What if I were to tell you that the uh-huh. ideas behind all of these groups have a single origin point? And in fact, an origin point in a single woman. They can all trace their lineage back to one broad. What, what if I were to tell you that, Jamie?
5: I would say I know exactly who that broad is, and I can't wait for you to tell me about
4: her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We are talking today about Helena Blavatsky, um, a woman so influential that the only way to start her episode was by spending five minutes talking about burning genitalia as a result of a variety of mistakes and fucking sandwiches.
5: And I honestly don't know where she would fall on any of those issues, to be perfectly honest. Well, that's interesting.
4: We're going to get into this, but she would claim most of her her life as a prominent figure that she was utterly celibate. But her biography, at least one of her biographers claim she was just like, as as the kids say, she was balls deep in that euro, you know?
5: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So she she was in the in the hero. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. excited for this because she has. I mean, I know we're gonna talk about it, but she has a jumping off point of the uh, that directly intersects with the show. I was just working on uh, ghost. Yes. she she started with some spiritualism stuff. Oh yes, and then. And then she really took it to an 11 uh, in the least
4: pleasant way. What's interesting, so, because your show is about spiritual, specifically American spiritualism, because there's different strains of it. She was Mm -hmm. kind of, you know what a magpie is? That bird that like lays its eggs in another bird's nest? She was that for spiritualism. She was never a spiritualist. Mm -hmm. She just snuck in there to sell her own thing. Um, It's a very (laughs) cool story.
5: I'm Um, very, very excited because I started researching her for the show, and then it just quickly became apparent that not only is there a at least a sixteen thousand word script to be had about it. I could have but gone also, longer. Yeah, and, and also that, like, like you're saying, like she wasn't actually in. She was just interested in the uh, the eyes and ears that spiritualism had.
4: Yeah, and it's one of those things. The, the religion she creates, Theosophy. I'm sure yeah. there's going to be some theosophists that are just going to be livid with us at the things we leave out. It's I, I read two biographies about this woman. Both of them were very long. Both of them have so much detail no one would ever need, unless you're interested in specific arguments that weirdo occult people were having in 1885. Like, and it, it, it's I mean, like, like pages and pages. I am kind of, of like, interested And of that, course, you honest. all know who this guy is. He wrote that. Like, um, so I'm trying to boil most of that out It's also worth noting both of the biographers I read are like believers. So no, there are no credible sources for most of this. There are a few facts that we can say for certain. And then it's like, here's one story. Here's another story because she's like, she's an L. Ron Hubbard figure. She, she, she never told the same story about her background twice, basically. Um, (laughs) So we're going to do our best here, but first we're going to start Um, well before the birth of Helena Blavatsky, um, by talking about the concept of Orientalism. Um, Now, today, Oxford Languages describes Orientalism as, quote, the representation of Asia, especially the Middle East, in a stereotyped way that is regarded as embodying a colonialist attitude. Um, I think today when people use the word, they're mainly thinking of, like, specifically China, um, but this includes a lot of colonialist attitudes towards India and obviously towards like the Middle East, uh, towards Northern Africa. Um, and this is a, a bad thing. If somebody accuses you of being an Orientalist, they're accusing you of a very specific kind of white supremacy, right? But back in the 1600s, Orientalism was still a thing, but it wasn't necessarily white supremacist. You could definitely say it was racist, although even that's a little off to me. Basically, it's it was based on stereotypes of Asia, many of which were wrong, but the stereotypes weren't based in hate as much as the fact that it was the 1600s, and it was kind of hard to get good information about India if you were, like, living in France, right? So, like, people just, like, believed things and didn't really have any way to confirm them, Um now, specifically, Orientalism in the sixteen hundreds would have actually centered more around Cairo and Egypt than it would have because that was the East, right? That was the that was the the like um, – that was the, the, the kind of old world to people in that period of time, this enlightenment period, and it was, it was the center of historic knowledge, right? Cairo had, had had the library of Alexandria, this kind of mythic – I mean it did exist in some form, but this like also very mythical library that's supposed to contain all of the knowledge human beings. Had. It, it's, this, it's this place where you go to find the secret truths of the ancients. Hey, I misspoke here and said Cairo had the Library of Alexandria. I meant to say Egypt had it. Obviously, the Library of Alexandria was in Alexandria.
5: It is so fascinating. Like, whenever you look at texts from that time, like, I know that we're absolutely skull-fucked when it comes to uh, the the proliferation of false info now. But just, like, people in the West their perception of egypt would have been formed by only just like a couple of (laughs) random western people and it's all just so incredibly vague and entitled and it's just wild
4: it's also i mean one of the things that's interesting so again in the 1600s um egypt is kind of like the occult center of of western conceptions of of like magic and stuff Um, Mm -hmm. The same is kind of true for the ancient Romans. That's the idea for for how fucking old Egyptian civilization is. 2000 years ago in like Caesar's day, like hip Romans are going to Alexandria, Cairo to like do some of the same shit because they're like interested in this like ancient mystical tradition and stuff.
5: And they're Um, like multiple gods. Yeah. I can't believe it.
4: Yeah, it's it's. It, I, mean, well, I mean, they had multiple gods too, but um.
5: Yeah, it's, no, it's I the Romans did, but I'm, oh, I'm talking yeah. about once once we get to just uh, one one big guy. Yeah.
4: yeah, It it remains this kind of there's this always been this fascination with with Cairo and with with Egypt in particular as this kind of like center of occult traditions, um, and it's also worth noting that in the 1600s, like shit, like the pyramids, like legitimately, they couldn't imagine how they could have been constructed. Um, they address so,
5: that in the first scene of Despicable Me
4: oh good I'm glad yeah it it's was the inflatable. minions right? it's it inflatable m- the,
5: well no it was inflatable
4: Oh, okay, okay. And then yeah. the minions. And went it was to sleep. the minions. The minions <laughs> then,
5: put it there. They used then, all their little minion breath to inform. And, and
4: then it. they went to sleep while Hitler was doing his thing, huh? You know, That's it's fun. My they cult never belief, account is for the,
5: like,
4: the other massacres. Like, where were the minions during Rwanda? Like, were they helping out with that shit? Like, were the minions aiding Slobodan Milosevic in the massacre at Srebrenica? Like, were well, the minions. Canonically,
5: canonically, the minions serve the most evil people. Person. I, so, I want to
4: recut that documentary, "The Act of Killing," for when that like Indonesian fascist is talking oh about how God. he would strangle <laughs> people. There's like an elderly minion behind him with the wire. You
5: are not putting <laughs> minions in the act of killing. Absolutely Someone not. needs
4: to, Jamie Loftus. So look. The way guys. in which Europeans during the Enlightenment treat Egypt is not very different from how a lot of New Age truth seekers treat India today, right? It, right down to the fact that, like, people from Europe would move there to, like, get do fancy spiritual stuff. they do the Steve Jobs. Um, now, obviously – it is kind of like India's kind of the spot for that today, right? Particularly, there's a couple of cities like Rishikesh where like white people love to go to like learn different sort of like Eastern uh, uh, spiritual traditions and whatnot. Um, yeah. And a lot the of white reason, spiritualists do that. Yeah. And, and Cairo is not so much, right? You don't hear of a lot of Westerners going to Cairo to like get involved in spiritual stuff today. And the reason mm-hmm. why that switch happened, uh, why kind of the capital of I guess what you'd call Western Eastern spiritualism uh, moves mm-hmm. from Egypt to India has a lot to do with a dude you've probably heard of named Voltaire. Um, yeah. And, and, and Voltaire is real into this, this idea that there are sacred truths in like kind of Eastern and Asian religion and mythology that Westerners have forgotten. Um, and specifically in a way that like, he thinks gives them kind of moral superiority over Westerners. In Candide, he gives kind of the final word in the book to a Turkish dervish. Uh, In The Princess of Babylon, he depicts a golden age civilization on the banks of the Ganges. Um, Voltaire was probably... Classic Voltaire.
5: Um, <laughs> I know so much about him. Like, I I know every word.
4: Yeah, you're. I you've you've famously got Voltaire's face tattooed across your lower back. Um,
5: Voltaire is not uh, mainly something I associate with one line in the Princess Diaries. One, definitely <laughs> <yeah>. not.
4: <laughs> so. Um, he was probably the best known, influence, and most influential Orientalist of his day, which was like most of the 1700s. This guy lived for fucking ever. He was born in 1694 and died in 1778. Pretty good run for that period in time. You're yeah, doing, I think he had a lot of syphilis by the end there. But who didn't, I like, right? did?
5: He not, I was like, did he not go outside? How do you how do yeah, you achieve he, that life? Yeah, uh,
4: he did all right for the day I mean that's pretty doing pretty good for now um, so one of the things that he wrote during his very long life was an essay on the spirit of nations um, which okay. listed China and India he's kind of going through in a list what he views as like the oldest civilizations and it lists he lists China and India as, as the very oldest of civilizations um, now Voltaire was not making any kind of archaeological argument here um, certainly not in the sense that you or I would talk about today he was instead yeah. arguing in favor of a concept in Vogue at the time called diffusionism. Now, today we map cultural inventions like, say, the Phoenician alphabet back to specific origin points, right? At some point, a person or persons in Phoenicia made an alphabet and it became popular, right? In the same way that, like, at some point, some motherfuckers made an iPhone and it became popular. But diffusionists didn't think that that's how inventing stuff worked. They believed that there had been some great civilization in the past in which all great cultural inventions came from, right? There was some golden age. Yeah.
5: Like an ideological Pangea situation? Like, That's exactly what
4: they think. That's exactly what...
5: well that's, d- that that's an interesting idea.
4: I, I, I think diffusionists believe there had been kind of like a couple of civilizations in the past that everything came from. Radical okay. diffusionists went that all believe that all human culture and technology had like a single origin point. Um Huh. Now, one of the things that was cool about Voltaire was that he argued, and this is what he was doing by listing China and India as like old, because basically, if you believe this, the older a civilization is, the the closer it is to like the human original ideal civilization, you know, like the further back you go. So by arguing that India and China were older than like any of kind of the Judeo-Christian civilizations, he was arguing against the primacy of Judeo-Christian beliefs in the broad sweep of human history, which is a pretty cool thing to be doing at the time. Um, Yeah. So when he listed India and China as coming before Judaism in his essay, he was making the claim that Christianity and Judaism were kind of copying or descending from older belief systems. Now, a thing that doesn't rock about this is that Voltaire also described the Jews as basically stealing their culture from other people. um, Right. I was like,
5: that does seem...
4: Exactly. There's mm, problems. It's good that like, okay, yeah, in the 1600s, probably... Christian people needed a little bit of like a hey you're not the center of human development right That's part's they good they don't like the they, ha- part, they
5: don't like hearing that Robert yeah. they hate that shit
4: and the bad part is that Voltaire focuses a lot on the Jews and, and specifically them as stealing their culture from older cultures and not inventing anything of their own, which is a a central pillar of anti-Semitism, particularly Nazi ideology, right. focuses a lot on like Jewish cultural theft. It's like a huge thing the Nazis are, which for a bunch of Christians is very funny. But anyway, whatever. I mean, um, well,
5: outside outside of like just like bald-faced anti-Semitism, is there a reason that he does not accuse Christians of the same thing? Like.
4: I think he kind of does, but he really just focuses on Jewish people. Um, He—I'm not an expert on Voltaire, but he—he spe- he does okay. spend. I think most people will agree he was a bit anti-Semitic. Now, w- anti-Semitic for the time—that's probably too much to say because it was everyone like there's regular pogroms and shit in this period, you know. So he's—he's—he's he's, right. he's pretty in line with a lot of Europeans in this moment. Um, okay. I want to quote now from a fascinating write-up by Dan Edelstein titled Hyperborean Atlantis. Quote, the Jews, as well as every other people that succeeded the Ur-civilization, which is like the the golden age civilization everything comes from, merely perpetuated a complete cultural system, which they inherited from the primogenitors of human society. At a time when polygenetic theories about the origin of human races were rampant, radical diffusionism was further bolstered by the notion that only certain select peoples could have had, would have had the requisite qualities for inventing culture. According to Voltaire, these primogenitors of all human knowledge were Indian. This hypothesis was particularly seductive, as it could be extended to the most sophisticated aspects of human culture, namely the sciences. The belief in the super-sophistication of Brahmanic culture grew stronger after Sir William Jones's discovery of Sanskrit grammar. But even before the Asiatic researchers saw the day, Brahmanism was being hailed as the original science. And this is, you'll see bits of this today. If you listen to like people talk about the Bhagavad Gita, there's a lot of focus, particularly in the West, on like passages that could be talking about witnessing a nuclear weapon and stuff. And right, this even goes both ways because famously um, was Oppenheimer quotes from the Bhagavad Gita when he sets off the first atomic bomb, right? Now I am become... Death, such and such, destroyer of worlds, yada yada. Um, but there's these drama like queen. you can find drama a lot queen. of conspiracies about like oh these these things from the Vedas or, or whatnot or the, these like bits of Indian art kind of look like they could be like a spaceship or something. And so maybe like well, the Bhagav maybe these these ancient Hindu texts are talking about some like prehistoric war with between advanced with an advanced human civilization that tore itself apart and we're all living in there. It's a thing people talk about today, right? That's not a a, a particularly common Hindu belief, but it's like a thing particularly Westerners will talk about today.
5: So that's kind of like my... That's kind of my big th- question so far is like when Voltaire and and the Voltaire adjacents talk about India and Egypt, are they talking about w- the Western perception of Egypt? Is anything they're saying based in actual fact? It's, it, yeah, there's
4: usually 10 or 15 percent actual fact because you'll get like oh, – so you know, that's a, lot a, a lot higher it is rate like, than a lot so, of people. A lot of it is like some Ro- – for for the Egyptian stuff, some Roman or some Greek – like spent time in egypt and like wrote about religious and half of what they're writing is like maybe they saw some like worship and half of it is like some dude at a bar told them about a ritual and that all kind of gets like mashed together into like herodotus writing about like what the egyptians believed and then a thousand ish a couple of thousand years later some like european in fucking paris or london reads that and like you know off to the race as we go um, you know,
5: I, I'm hanging out at the wrong bars. The bar I went to last week said that overturning Roe v. Wade uh, was good for me. I just didn't know it yet.
4: Oh well, that's sounds like a bar in Florida, um, <laughs>
5: <laughs> or, or, or it was Orange
4: not. County, um, or <laughs> parts of San Bernardino. Um, it was Atwater
5: Village. Shout out Atwater Village for having ugh. some anti-abortion uh, <laughs> old men continue. Yeah,
4: that sounds right. So speaking yeah. of old men, uh, Voltaire argued strongly that India, not Egypt, should be considered the font of civilization. So he's saying that like, even the Egyptians are just kind of like copying off of this great original Indian civilization. Um, okay. And as you pro- probably has accro- occurred to a couple of people listening right now, um, the things that he's arguing about and that other argue- uh, are, like writers in the same vein are arguing about meshes pretty well with like the most popular myth in Western mythological canon, Atlantis, right?
5: Okay. Yes.
4: You're, there's not. <laughs> I had not a, made that saying, connection, like, but yes. there's like this perfect golden age civilization with advanced technology that that's like somehow got destroyed, and we're all descended from them. Um, like that's not that far off from how a lot of people interpret Atlantis. Now, the yeah. the original myth of Atlantis comes from like uh, Plato, as written by some other dude, right? Like it's not. Not like not like Play- the Michael
5: J. Fox movie.
4: Yeah, no, this is like, this is like when Plato got played by Ewan McGregor um, 20 years later. <laughs> um,
5: or when uh, Salvador Dali got played by Robert Pattinson. I feel like people don't about that. Oh my God, that, that, that did happen.
4: What a Please batshit Google. thing to do. Especially Absolutely
5: since- Absolutely unhinged. If, if you are <laughs> that casting Dali,
4: fucking Pedro Pascal is right there. And he has proven his willingness to grow a mustache.
5: Oh, he's, and he can actually do it. You know who didn't do it it for the role? Robert Pattinson. (laughs) Robert Pattinson, baby. It's uh, that, and remember me, iconically bad Robert Pattinson Incredible shit.
4: Absolutely outstanding shit.
5: Oh, um, good movie night vibe anyways so,
4: continue <laughs> uh, according to Plato it was written by some other dude Atlantis was the home of a very advanced people uh, modern writers always take that to mean like spaceships and free energy in Plato's day I an mean, advanced civilization meant like their aqueducts worked better right like that's what he was not advantage- imagining starships he was like yeah and they're really
0: good at making water move <laughs> <laughs> you the road is money.
4: fucking
5: incredible at <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. aqueduct um, shit
4: it, in In time, Atlantis mutated as a myth into a pre-Egyptian globe-spanning civilization that had colonized the world in a manner similar to how Europeans had started to colonize it in the 1600s, right? The Atlantis myth... Kind of transforms to ape what Europeans are doing at the same time, right? Europeans see themselves conquering the entire world and colonizing it. And because these myths, like they kind of adapt the Atlantis myth in media res to be, oh, this happened before. And you know, just there's confirmation for it. bias.
5: Uh, right. Loving yeah, when exactly. people manufacture their own confirmation bias myths. Yeah. Galaxy so, brain shit.
4: There's a lot of guys who are like, super hard for this or a good example Sir Francis Bacon gets his like c- <laughs> like it's just coming constantly over fucking Atlantis in the early what? 1600s and um yeah in the late 1700s near the end of Voltaire's life an astronomer named Jean Sylvain Bailey decides to find Atlantis right this like Because it's all – it's this – they've decided there's – because of folks like Voltaire, they don't really believe that Atlantis is this like Greek island anymore. Um, And in fact, a lot of people are like placing it in the east, but nobody knows where it was. So they all very much believe in this place that kind of its existence, especially Mm -hmm. if you you imagine that you're going to find some artifacts that like – maybe have some writing and stuff that looks Latin or something in there its existence could kind of justify what you're doing in colonizing the world right if some previous civilization had ruled the world and you're kind of descended from them you know that's how what a lot of people are thinking right um
5: So, it's so funny uh, to me. It's like the the fact that there were people looking for Atlantis back in the day, and people like it. I, they are just like the Bigfoot hunters of their time, basically. Look, and people act Jamie, like it's the most uncivilized thing in the world. I just like, dude, there, this used to be a thriving industry. It's if, a dying industry.
4: If I were at the point I am in my career now, in like the early nineteen nineties, which was famously a period in which there were no problems, I would be doing nothing but looking for Atlantis and Bigfoot.
5: Like, yeah, I'd ha- yeah, the thing is, it's not the silliest thing you could do. I don't like when it's treated that way.
4: No, the silliest thing you <laughs> could do, do is is write a book about how history has come to an end. Um that's right, <laughs> Fukuyama. Go look for Atlantis, motherfucker. So <clears throat> Jean Sylvain Bailey decides, I'm going to find Atlantis. And because history is actually not as cool as fiction, he does not put together a badass steampunk expedition with hot air balloons and shit, which is a uh, heartbreak. J- devastating, Jamie. What a Absolutely bummer. Absolutely devastating. So he's um, not doing
5: the steampunk cartoon no, movie that no, I used to love. No, no. It, it what
4: is. A shame. It, it wrenches my soul in twain. But he writes a bunch of really boring books trying to use math and logic to like figure out where it would have been. Um, Fucking
5: yawn. It, I know. God.
4: Fuck you, Jean Sylvain Bailey. Like go to, suck a didn't hero ask sandwich I did for homework. it's been fucked. I want
5: to go to Atlantis, yeah. bitch.
4: Yeah. Okay. Anyway, whatever. Uh, in Bailey, we see the synthesis of the diffusionist trend with a new 18th century appreciation for the value of myths, previously rejected as being the beliefs of pre-rational civilizations, which is a uh, fucked up term, but that's what they're talking about, right? They view civil... Earlier civilizations is pre-rational. I don't believe that's the case because you can't survive as a hunter-gatherer if you're not pretty rational. But whatever, scholars and in also this period they are even yeah.
5: arguing that the West yes. was rational at this time. As exactly, a bear, exactly. As a There's a lot that's, like, wrong, that's wrong with so that. Ridiculous. This is
4: this is how they were talking about it. Scholars yeah. in this period, um, though, this is actually kind of kind of in some ways a positive trend where like there there a lot of scholars are going against this attitude that earlier civilizations had been like just fundamentally irrational and there's nothing to learn about their mythology scholars start to argue that like well no there's actually a lot of truth in in certain myths that's why like they spread um and the good the the aspect of this is healthiest. And so we should like study and appreciate the different mythologies and whatnot that human beings have embraced over time because they can teach us a lot about ourselves. Instead, a lot of scholars decide like, well, this must mean that all of these myths are like branches of some great historic truth that has been corrupted over time. And if we can Mm -hmm. figure out like a, a secret set of codes that allow us to like peel away the parts of the myths that have gotten corrupted over time, you could unlock a sacred discourse that reveals the truth about history. Um, so that's I not. I think you so said much. a
5: sacred discord for a sacred second, and that no, was a very no. funny. There is a special discord board that
4: people are doing that there is Chandler. now sorry uh, so Dan yeah. Edelstein writes, quote. Hercules' twelfth and last labor in the traditional sequence led him beneath ground to capture Cerberus, just as Persephone and other solar figure had disappeared underground for half the year. These episodes and others, Bailey surmised, symbolized the complete disappearance of the sun. The inventors of the myth must therefore have lived at a latitude where the sun periodically vanished from the sky. Dismissing earlier theories about the location of Atlantis, Bailey thus reached the surprising conclusion that Atlantis lay near the North Pole, roughly where the Novaya Zemlia Archipelago is situated. So, you see, what he's doing there he's being like number one he's saying that like well because all of these myths have a common origin point and it's much older it can't be like Greece like it has to be older Um, the Hercules myths can't have just been some things some Greek dudes came up with when they were drunk as shit around a Uh, campfire it has to originate from somewhere so let's well let's pinpoint within the story ah they're talking about an eclipse which must mean that they live near the North Pole
5: (laughs) (laughs) I in some ways you gotta hand it to him. It's very funny. It's very funny
4: the wild... way the logic works. Like,
5: and you're seriously, also, seriously, my dude. Africa is also here. Like, there, there's other places we can explore oh, okay. and, and no, trace the myth. I mean, uh, not explore, but you know. again,
4: it is funny that like this is one of those cases where the 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 people earlier and who were generally wronger about a lot of things were right about the origin of civilization, or writer when they like. Proposed that it was in Egypt because, like, yeah, it did start in like North Africa. Like, that's more, more or less North right. Africa, and like, that's in the Middle but it's East. it's like right? only like
5: Egypt that is worth exploring. It's yeah. just ugh. so yeah. they go to the Hercules myth too. They,
4: yeah, they they go. They, they, I mean, Hercules clearly <laughs> grew up in the North Pole. Jamie, I don't know if you've read Hercules.
5: Look, but. would I watch that movie? A million percent I would watch that movie. There, I, I, I like to think, I was like, what would be the like, popular current myth that people could, <laughs> that once uh, society collapses, that uh, future cryptids can uh, assume is based on truth? I'm like, is it uh, Aragon? Is yeah, it?
4: Yeah, I, let's let's uh, let's have it be the ripoff of J.R.R. Tolkien. like yeah. Let,
5: let's yeah. have it be Aragon or uh, my favorite vampire story, is Cirque du Freak. Let's have it be Cirque du Freak.
4: There you go, Jamie. Let's yeah, yeah. Have it it it'll be Cirque du Freak. Um, that's <laughs> our our foundational myth. Um, also, yeah. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> that Santa Claus should start great. traveling around with Hercules.
5: Oh, hundred um, percent.
4: But but specifically young Arnold Schwarzenegger Hercules where he can't really talk like in English. Like he's just like, he's just like pronouncing words phonetically because he doesn't know him. what he's saying.
5: Oh my god! Yep, I want yep. that
4: Hercules hanging out with Santa Claus, just hucking people into the East Bay. Um, Look, North right. Pole
5: Hercules is a strong mm. idea for a franchise. Mm-hmm. Free IP folks, go all nuts. All right, come on
4: Disney, money on the table. You know what else is money <laughs> on the table, Jamie Loftus?
5: Uh, tell me what.
4: The products and services that support this podcast. Money we're taking, which is why you're about to hear these ads.
5: I hope they're about to try. I hope Gwynnie's about to try to sell you a jade egg. Oh, mm. wouldn't that be Fing- amazing?
4: Fingers crossed. Well, Look, other things I've- crossed. <laughs> the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play.
1: Just be me.
2: Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under 17, not minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th.
4: My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. Forty-five dollar upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're back. Oh. So have you
5: ever have you ever seen a jade egg, Robert?
4: I've seen jade eggs. I haven't seen anyone. The kind that you stick in your. I've seen some people put some things inside them. I'll tell you that much.
5: Oh, Um, my God. I got this friend
4: who can put one of those metal Coke straws all the way up. Anyway, Um, I
5: used to use I used to use one as a stage prop where I did a show where at the end, like I would have the jade egg in. I would put it in at the beginning of the show (laughs) and then people would totally forget I had done that. And they would also assume I never actually did it. And right, then at it was the some
4: end, of shit,
5: yeah. And then at the end, I would, they would watch me pull it out, and then and and people hated it, Robert. They did not like it. But so I had a weird. great time. You don't when even I know that. I was it's a there. kid.
4: I had great parties that only happened because somebody was able to hide a bag full of pills inside themselves in a similar way and drive across Dallas when there were <laughs> a just bunch just of good, fucking checkpoints set up,
5: huh? That's a good comrade.
4: That's a good. That's a good, a good, comrade, that's a good buddy. Yeah. Um, So we're talking about Bailey and his conclusion that Atlantis lays near the North Pole, right? And this this is what brings us the concept that is called today like Hyperborean Atlantis. Hyperborea is this like mythical – in some myths, it's like a a whole like Pangea-style continent way back in the day. But the Hyperboreans are like this mythical people who had supposedly existed – Somewhere in the far north of Greece, like far north of Greece and worshipped Apollo. And these kind of okay. Hyperboreans kind of – that Hyperborea becomes kind of the word for the the civilization, the great civilization that everything had originated from. It's also mm-hmm. the civilization that Conan the Barbarian comes from in the Robert Howard novels. But that's because Howard is specifically a fan of this like mythology. He's like growing up. This okay. is all still very – like when Robert Howard the guy who creates Conan the Barbarian is like writing his yeah. stories this mythology is, is incredibly common um, because Got of it. Helena Blavatsky um, but Oof. yeah so Hyperborean Atlantis is the concept that kind of comes up out as a result of of Bailey's work um, and Bailey argues that the Hyperboreans had been real and that they'd lived up near the Arctic back when the world was warmer um, and again at face value that's just another silly myth theory there's a bunch of different myths about early human beings that are all very fun, very fun, but not literally true. Literally true. Um, yeah, I mean, for but, example,
5: the the opening of the movie Minions offers some really yes. interesting ideas about how Minions came to be.
4: Well, you know, and and Jamie actually, that's based heavily on Catholic doctrine that's been buried beneath the Vatican for centuries. Um, well, but
5: Minions do believe in di- in dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Dinosaurs are a thing for Minions. It, well, and for Catholics. Yeah, uh, really? Yeah,
4: Catholicism, they've always been shitty about abortion, but, like, they've been good about evolution for a long time. Um,
5: Okay, well, that's good to know. There you go. go. I I, I lapsed as a Catholic. You know what they're bad uh, about is child molestation,
4: um, which the minions probably helped with. You have to assume, right?
5: Okay, no, they didn't, Robert. Jamie, they're helping
4: all of the villains. What's more of a villain than the Catholic Church in Ireland in, like, the last 150 years? They well the do, english you, in ireland over the last you do years, see
5: them i believe unless i'm ta- unless i was misreading who they were you see them help at the beginning of the movie you see them help the dine you see them help a t-rex you see them help the meanest caveman you wait see why them is help- a t-rex
4: a bad guy it's just an animal
5: i hate they the were, man
4: fuck this fucking show
5: you see you see them help
4: napoleon bonaparte <laughs> oh napoleon was not a bad guy he was the only hero in european history Look, that's my this opinion.
5: Is what happens in the movie that and then they find Gru who is um Steve Carell and
4: he's Hitler? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take that as as given. So, yes. Jamie He is Hitler. Yeah. uh, Again, at face value, this idea of like a hyperborean Atlantis just sounds like another silly myth. Uh, But as Edelstein continues, the impact of Bailey's conclusions here uh, was significant. Quote, Bailey dissociated Atlantis from the Atlanteans, the place from the people. He thus mobilized the myth, tracing its progress from the North Pole through Asia via Mongolia down to India. And from there, from east to west, Atlantis became a floating signifier, an indicator of cultural superiority and a Originality that could be affixed to any place and people with whom the migrant Atlanteans might have come into contact. By situating their original homeland beyond the scope of empirical inquiry under the concealing lid of polar ice sheets, he turned the Atlanteans into what would soon become the 19th century myth par excellence, the myth of race, and more specifically, the white of the white race's peregrination... Uh, uh, peregrind- I don't know how to say that word. Um, so basically what I he's fucking what doing it is? Let me, let me tell you here. Let me explain this. So basically what he's doing is okay. he's saying like the Atlanteans came from this area near the North Pole, which is now under ice. You can't find it. So there's no documentation of it. And after this great calamity, the Atlanteans migrated down like through China and then into India and then through the Middle East and then eventually to Europe. Right. So mm-hmm. that number one, there's elements of like actual history that gels with, right? You have like the Indo-Aryans. We're not coming from the North Pole, but you have these like different groups of people primarily defined by like their language that do migrate from vast swaths of like, of of the globe over periods of time. And so mm. there's bits and pieces of like evidence that shows like, oh, these people here you know, originally, like, uh, uh, came from, or at least people migrated down from this area, and, like, you can see evidence of that, which, when you Mm -hmm. just have bits of it, kind of seems to confirm, oh, there's this, like, migrating race that's bringing civilization in its wake, right? So, basically, a lot of white supremacists will eventually, this will evolve into, like, the Aryan myth, right? That there's this, like... Okay. Ancient Aryan race that brought civilization to Europe, and it's being corrupted now. But there is this like original pure race that you can trace, and like the Nazis do trace them they back always to get India. Back
5: around to that, That's...
4: Like, yeah. I mean, and, and it again, there's bits of actual because there there is like an Indo-Aryan like people that travel up from India and eventually make it into Eastern Europe and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's not like what the Nazis are talking about, but the Nazis do, they sit, the Nazis send researchers to India to like, um, the fucking Himalayas and shit to talk with, um, uh, people that they believed are like the ancestors of the Aryans. Like there's a lot when are of... They,
5: when are they doing that?
4: In like the, in the 30s, 20s and 30s. The there's 30s, a, an okay. SS, well in the 30s particularly once the Nazis gained power, there's an SS division called the Ananerbe, which is like the SS kind of occult history division. A lot of like historians and researchers are funded by the Nazis to go over into India and find evidence of the ancient Aryans because the Nazis mm-hmm. believe so strongly in this idea that there's this urban culture that are our ancestors that traveled through the world and they've just been kind of like corrupted by mistakenly breeding and like the Jews come into this at a certain point um, so you
5: just have to like send someone to find a scrap of information to create your confirmation bias myth
4: Yeah, and and we can, yeah, I'm going to continue that quote now. We can now fully fathom the political thrust of Bailey's gesture. Rather than orientalize Atlantis, which is what uh, Voltaire had done, he Atlanticized the Orient, making a snow-white northern European people, the Hyperboreans, responsible for the cultural achievements and splendors of the East. He did not deny Oriental achievements. On the contrary, he bent over backwards to concur with Voltaire that Asian civilizations were truly awe-inspiring. But a Hyperborean Atlantis, allowed him to credit a European stock with the foundation of these ancient cultures. So Voltaire's like, obviously, like, we 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 in Europe are not so fancy and we shouldn't be as proud of ourselves. Look at how much, like, grander these civilizations in the East were. And Bailey comes along and he's like, yes, and it's because these white Hyperborean Atlanteans brought them civilization before they brought it here, when their civilization was, like, closer to pure, and that's why they had all these achievements. But it's still, like, white people, right?
5: Yeah, yeah it yeah
4: Okay, so Bailey's ideas did not gra- gain tremendous ground in his time. Uh, Jules Verne actually mocks it. The whole book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is Jules Verne making fun of this guy pretty much. Um, it's one of those wow. things you don't catch now because like, it's this argument between dudes who've been dead for hundred. 150- yeah, but Verne is kind of like mocking Bailey specifically in that book.
5: I um, always enjoy something like that where you're like, yeah, yeah you can read the, w- like, when do you find out The Wizard of Oz is an allegory for something that you're like, well, yeah. I didn't know about <laughs> so, these agrarians. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Like what, this is not relevant to me, but at the time people were like, oh, he got their asses. Well,
4: and that is the mark to me of like great, like, like, you know, shitty political, shitty fiction. It's very obvious that like, ah, this is just some like stupid political rant. And if it's really good fiction, you know, there's probably some dumb political rant there because all authors do that kind of shit, but you don't notice it. It's like right, Tolkien was true. actually extremely angry uh, about, about Tory fiscal policy, and that's really what he's talking about when he, he discusses the delineation of the different uh, Orcish peoples from the elves. Um, it's all it's – all, I, I, that was, I don't, I, I, I don't know I've enough not about found, Tory I've, economic I've, policy to continue this joke. That was a lie. I've,
5: I've not found elves. the patience in this lifetime to to dive into Tolkien lore. I don't think it's going to happen for me.
4: Uh, oh, it's funny. He He really hated the idea that anybody would read anything into his books, but like... But, but the elves and in the works. Only like only gave he's, things li- to read like, into. Pe- like, he, the man lives through a battle of the Somme in which thousands of his comrades are, like, sucked into mud and drown in it, like, while he watches. And then he, like, writes in his book about this battle where thousands of corpses are, like, trapped forever in a bog. And people are like, was this about, like, were you, like, writing about World War One at all? And he, like, hits them in the face with a beer bottle. <laughs> like, fuck you for assuming. <laughs> um, Exhausting. What a king. So, (laughs) Jamie. Yeah. This somewhat meandering discussion. um, You know, Bailey. I think
5: it's been very on topic. uh,
4: Yeah, thank you. So Bailey is kind of ignored in his time, mocked by guys like Jules Verne, but about 60 years after he publishes his work, a woman is going to be born who will take his ideas, expand them, and carry them forward into a new and bloodier age. Her name is Helena Petrovna von Hahn, and she's born on August twelfth, eighteen thirty one, in a Slav, now Dnipro, that's in Ukraine.
5: She's a Leo. So she's a Leo, so of course she's gonna be a little bit showy, Robert. And her her whole
4: childhood is in. In Ukraine, specifically, it's in like a lot of the parts of Ukraine that are people are fighting and dying over right now. Um, mm-hmm. Her hometown, um, Ekaterinoslav, was a, a very modern city by the standards of the Russian Empire. It had been built just a century before, um, and it specifically was like a city they had established in like honor of Catherine the Great, um, who is mm-hmm. uh, the ruler of Russia for quite a while. Very interesting lady. Also a good friend of Voltaire, just Interesting oh. note. Um, now, you may have noticed that she is, a, there's a Vaughn in her name, right? She's, she's Helena yes. Petrovna von Hahn. Um, this means that she's nobility, but you also might oh, notice I that like Vaughn is is German, right? Yeah, if you're, a Vaughn is is like a marker that you're a member of like the nobility in, in German culture.
5: Whoa, um, Robert, and, I'm, yeah. I feel like I should have known that. Does it? Does everybody know that?
4: Yeah, I think like the guy who assassinated Hitler, Klaus von Stauffenberg, was Prussian nobility, right? Um, I didn't know that.
5: All right. Yeah.
4: It's know. why a lot of grifters put Vaughn in their name in like the 1800s, 1900s. It's because they're like pretending to be European nobles. Um okay. And obviously, von Hahn is a German name. She's German, but she's Russian because a huge chunk of the Russian aristocracy are actually German. This is going mm-hmm. to cause serious problems for some of them in about a century. But at the time, everybody's fine about it because like they're serfs and they don't have any choice but to be fine about it. So anyway – She's German, but she's Russian, and she lives in Ukraine. This is the Mm -hmm. Russian Empire. Not weird at the time. The first great event of her childhood would have been a cholera epidemic, which killed so many people that coffins piled up in the streets of her hometown unburied. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, her mother was 17 when she had her, which um, we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. Uh, Her mom is also named Helena, and she is not in particularly good health. Uh, She and her new baby both catch cholera and nearly die. Um, and, in fact, young Helena the baby was so sick that her godparents and and household called for a priest to baptize her immediately as a newborn infant because, like, okay. they thought she was going to die. Um, and according to family legends, Helena's aunt, who was actu- also a child at the time, accidentally set the priest's robes on fire during the baptism, which <laughs> is a pretty cool thing to have happen at your baptism. Okay.
5: That's um, pretty funny. You have to. You have to hand it. It's dope. there is something. Uh, there is something about a near death experience as a baby that will just like set you on the most bizarre life paths. And unfortunately, I am thinking about Elvis Presley and how his twin died. <laughs> And oh now they're God, like, you yeah. have to live the life of two men. And then, it, like, you just if, – if something happened – if you almost died as a baby, you're going to have a very fucked up life due to the baggage that you're, like, constantly reminded of.
4: Yeah. That's why we should hollow out the center of the country and make it a giant child prison. But that's a story for another day. So, Jamie – Okay, Despite Denver the Airport. ill tidings, Helena and her mom both survived the epidemic. You may not- notice that I have not mentioned her father yet. This is because he was a captain with Russia's horse artillery, some fancy royal unit, and he was generally not at home. He first meets his daughter okay. when she's six months old. Um, and this is going to be like the pattern for her life. He is away all the time. Um, okay. now her dad, He's fighting in the horse was, wars. Horse artillery is like an elite military unit in this period like you're you're dragging like it allows you to like drag cannons around and move them into position quickly and p- Peter von Hahn is kind of like an elite military commander for Tsar Nicholas I he wins awards for helping to suppress a bunch of different uprisings he is a shock trooper for the empire um, and okay. Nicholas I, who is like the Tsar at the time is p- one of the most brutal and effective Tsars in the history of the Russian Empire so mm-hmm. while Peter's daughter is struggling with her 17 year old mom to survive cholera he is helping to crack down on an uprising in Poland and they kill thousands of people like stopping this uprising it is blood running through the streets shit now the primary impact that all this has on young Helena's life is that they move constantly Um, also her dad is 34 and her mom is 17 uh, which is Mm. not cool um, oh, another, also, uh it's another Elvis again, parallel. Sorry. Not at all uncommon for the aristocracy at the time. This would have been kind of weird sure. I think for like normal people, but for aristocrats not uncommon. Were they
5: were they vaguely yeah. related? Do we know?
4: I mean probably, right? Uh but I don't I don't right. specifically know. Yeah, um okay. I'm not going to, we, we could get into their genealogy, I'm sure, a lot more if we wanted to, but who's got that kind of time? You so know. the primary impact, again, they move constantly, and they're generally, because he's like a military officer whose job is to help put down rebellions, they're not staying in the good cities in Russia, right? They're in backwaters, you know? They're far from famous, all, like from the art and cultural scene in, in Russia. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a problem for Helena's mother, who's again also Helena, because she becomes a celebrated novelist. Um, she's a really interesting lady, actually. Again, she's, ma- she marries yeah. her husband when he's, like, she's a child. Um, but she, as a young adult, she starts writing novels that become actually very popular in Russia. And they're all about women who are in unhappy marriages to brutes. Um, so This we can- is, like,
5: a part of her history that I was like, this is very cool. Like, it this It is, is dope. Her mom
4: is a really yeah. interesting person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to quote a passage from one of her books titled The World's Judgment, which I found excerpted in, in a Gary Lockman's biography of Madame Blavatsky. Mm-hmm. The fine, sharp, and fast mind of my husband, as a rule accompanied by a cutting irony, smashed every day one of my brightest, most innocent, and pure aspirations and feelings. All that was sacred to my heart was either laughed at or was shown to me in the pitiless and cynical light of his cold and cruel reasoning. Ooh. So... I think you can grasp a lot about their relationship from that passage.
5: I love I mean it's, it's I just always I don't know my my favorite areas of history are uh women with no rights finding the way to uh to, to subtweet their oppressors into fucking oblivion. Like that is so fun. And not to draw another minions parallel, Robert. Okay. But please, please. the man who is at least the co-creator, one could argue the creator of The Minions, co-director of the Despicable Me franchise, Pierre Coffin, raised by a very famous Indonesian feminist who wrote novels uh, when she was still working as a flight attendant that became very famous, very influential. She marries a French guy. They have a, uh, a, a little Pierre Coffin. And what does he do to thank her? Creates the Minions, a, 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 an entire... Two great works a of bunch art of,
4: from two generations of a family.
5: Or you can interpret it as all the Minions are are men. They're all men doing evil things. And you're like, wha- where is he going with this? Does he realize it's all connected in the way that I, I do when I go on my long walks? You know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't yeah. know.
4: We don't know. So, Jamie... That's uh, yeah. that's that's pretty. And I, I think we can assume from that passage also sex probably wasn't great. Like, uh, no, pro- yeah, probably I, you not. Know. Probably not very good. Probably probably. probably I'm going to guess Peter worse at sex than say uh, a, 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 a foot a foot long subway <laughs> <laughs> sandwich. One of the ones on the uh, the, the, the the that herbs and, and, and spices bread. The you herbs know?
5: and spice. Well, that's, that's the see, best bread
4: to fuck. If you're going to fuck some bread, you want to be fucking that herbs and spices, you know?
5: That's the best bread, but I feel like it might have a Dr. Bronner's kind of effect on the Yeah, jungles. it's it's
4: going to be a little peppery. That's why you have a mad extra mayo.
5: Yeah, you really need to wash right away.
4: Yeah, you want and that. wash with mayo, right? It's it's <laughs> like washing <laughs> your eyes out with milk if you get mad. T- don't do that if you get tear gassed. I'm sorry. I don't even want to <laughs> spread that. Um, oh funny, God. though, right? So, <clears throat> I don't know. Funny. Anyway. Helena, the mom, was never in – because, again, they're both named Helena – was never in good health, uh, so she doesn't ever fully get better from getting horribly sick, and they move constantly, which is bad for her health. They live in army housing, which isn't good either, um, although she and her baby still have, like – again, they're rich. They have a small army of servants at their beck and call, so it's, it's like, hard, but not hard compared to how most people in Russia would be living at the time, Um When she was two, uh, when Helena the baby, our Helena, was two, her mom, also Helena, has another baby named Sasha, who dies immediately, which was tradition for roughly half of babies at the time. And you know who else kills babies roughly half the time?
5: Is it the people who sponsor this show?
4: On their special child hunting island off the coast of Indonesia.
5: Um that's been leaving a chicken with its throat slit on my front porch mm-hmm. every week for yep. 6 years. I can't pay them to stop.
4: Mhm. That's right, Jamie. You know why they're doing that? So you keep your mouth shut about the child hunting island off the coast of Indonesia.
5: <laughs> oh my god. You're right. And uh, and and here we are. It's never going to end.
1: To
2: just be in me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
1: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives, Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
4: Oh, we're back.
1: Right? Okay.
4: After making Sophie mark a bunch of places in the episode to bleep out the name of
5: <laughs> <laughs> Cool. <laughs> So, I like how you keep calling her uh, Helena the baby. Yes. Um, it does make her sound like a TikTok rapper.
4: <laughs> Helena the baby. It does, it does. make her sound like a TikTok rapper. She would have, oh my God. I have to say of all of the bastards we've talked about on this show, easily would have had the best TikTok.
5: I do see what you're saying. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, she yeah. We'll,
4: we'll get to that. She would have. Dem- I mean, her legacy lives on TikTok. on
5: TikTok. Unfortunately, but now yeah.
4: Saddam okay. Hussein—that's a Twitter head.
5: That's a Twitter guy.
4: You get Saddam on Twitter. Ain't oh, nothing else happening on oh, Twitter. No. Oh, oh no. man, that would have been a good time. Um, he would be
5: making. <laughs> he would be using the threat emoji often. Yeah. Oh,
4: for sure. Sh- oh my God, it would have been incredible. So God. after this, the family moved to, briefly to St. Petersburg, right? They get, like, stationed there for a year or two, which thrills Mom Helena because St. Petersburg is, like, the cultural center of Russia. She's This is when her her literary career is starting to take off, and she's able to, like, go to art galleries and fancy parties and, and sit at salons with other adults who aren't, like, drunken soldiers. This is, like, her dream life. She finally gets to live for, like, the only two years or a year or whatever that she will actually get to be anything close to happy. Um, When baby Helena is six, Peter tells them that they're going to have to move again to the middle of nowhere to brutalize people. And this time mom, Helena says, no, Um, she refuses to move with her husband and like go with the army basically. Um, So she stays in St. Petersburg a while. And then her father comes to her and asks if she and her daughter want to go on an adventure. Um now Helena's maternal grandfather father had been made a trustee for the Kalmuk which was a wandering tribe of horse riding warriors who like th- the part of the area that they lived in they had like a moving city and stuff that they took with them and like part of the area that they they live in is in is in Russia Um, I think they go to a number of places, but like they live like within kind of the bounds of the Russian empire because it's big and there's different kind of rules for tribal peoples. And one of the things is you've got like this guy who's appointed by the government to be the intermediary of the tribe and the Russian government. And Helena's maternal grandmother gets that job for this, this group of like horse riding warrior nomads who are also Buddhist. Right? So again, Russia's very fucking big. Um, so uh, he takes his daughter and his granddaughter on a journey to a city called Ostrakhan in the very distant steppes, where the Kalmuk are like, camping out, and young Helena, as like seven-something, eight years old, gets to spend time in direct contact with Buddhists. This is her first experience with Eastern religion, and this legitimately happens. Gary Lockman writes, quote, Here the young Helena Blavatsky was exposed to the Mongolian Lamaic system and had her first taste of Tibetan Buddhism. Her mother, too, was inspired by the meeting and later wrote a novel about Kalmuk life, which was translated into French. The prince spent his days in prayer in a Buddhist temple he had built himself. The color." the images, the incense, the strange words murmured in an unfamiliar tongue, must have made a deep impression on the six-year-old, I guess she was six, who had already led a remarkably adventurous life. Blavatsky would later say that her interest in Tibet began at that time. So, and again, Tibet is this kind of mythical place. It is a real place, but, like, you can't go to Tibet if you're, like, a Westerner. It's it's pretty, it's it's closed. Um, but you know, this guy, Tibet's, you know, obviously like kind of one of the centers of Buddhism. And so this like horse nomad Prince is like talking to this little girl about Tibet and she kind of falls in love with, with, you know, Eastern religion and mysticism. Um, and after this period of time which legitimately sounds like a pretty rad experience to have as a six-year-old uh the family all wind up back together with peter in odessa um mainly because helena the mom is really sick again and odessa has these mineral baths that are thought to be good for her health um yeah like most i love, rich ugh,
5: I love old school uh rich people it's yeah. like you just just go sit in some salt water you'll be fine mm-hmm. it'll be good yeah. you're like just go do rich people shit People are fine. idiots
4: back then, so they just go sit in baths when they could take simple prescription medicine any of us could get from a pharmacy today. Like, go to Walgreens, dumbasses.
5: I'm sorry. Did you not consider going to CVS? Yeah, motherfuckers. Loser?
4: Your death's on you. I don't even care. Like, it takes we're about, 10 we're about minutes.
5: To get, we're about to get canceled.
4: Yeah, we are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, she probably had, um, uh, what's the thing? uh, 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 uh. It was like consumption, um, I think, is generally like what people assume she had, right? They just kind of describe her as sickly. So she had some sort of like chronic lung illness that eventually kills her um, that, again, you could probably knock out in like 10 minutes today. Uh, Anyway, she dies in 1842. Um, Her baby Helena, uh, now the only Helena, was 11 at the time. Um, Her mother was 28 years old when she died. Wow. Yeah, so that's... Has her kid at seventeen? She got her novels. Novel- she got world. her
5: novels done before. That's impressive shit. Mm-hmm. That's impressive shit. Yeah.
4: Um, and probably what killed her ultimately was the fact that her doctors kept taking all of her blood because um, again, medicine's not great in 1842. Uh, she dies in her mother's arms, which is one of the saddest ways a 28-year-old can die. Um, and yeah. Yeah. That's not not great. Her mother, who's probably like 48. <laughs> God. <laughs> um, so Helena was pr- presumably like you know the daughter. Helena was presumably yeah, pretty devastated. The baby. Uh, life goes on though, and sh- soon she and her siblings—she has two siblings now—are all sent to live with her grandparents because army guy, like army dad's not going to take care of him. Like he's not going to be a single army dad. Like no, they're going to go live no, with grandma who and grandpa. No, who's he?
5: Grew from Despicable Me.
4: In fairness, these are all rich people, so they're staying with yep. their grandparents at like basically a castle. You know, like they're they're living in like a mansion type uh, palace deal. Uh okay. You know, in 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 kind of like the easterny. Well, not east for Russia, but east for Europe, part of, of Russia. Um okay. Gary Lockman writes, quote, "She was, according to her sister Vera, the strangest girl one has ever seen, with a distinct dual nature. One side of her was mischievous, combative, and obstinate, while another was mystical and metaphysically inclined, characteristics that those who got to know the mature Helena Blavatsky would agree on. Her aunt Nadia, just a few years older than her, tells us that from an early age she was sympathetic to the lower classes and preferred to play with the servants' children rather than those of her own class, and often made friends with ragged street boys." This solidarity with her social inferiors wasn't uniform, and she once had to apologize to an elderly servant whom she had slapped. (laughs) And again, (laughs) Lachman likes Blavatsky and defends her. So it's very funny that he's like, she loved the poor. She did slap that guy. She loved the poor.
5: (laughs) Well, I also like how it's included in text that, well, she apologized. So, you know, she must've just been having a bad day. Jesus Christ.
4: Yeah, I mean, she was made to. He does say she had to apologize, right? So we're not. I oh, don't okay. Think she so did also, she didn't mean no. it. So also, no, also she, she did just not mean slapping it at all. that. I mean, again, this is why the servants are a bad thing to have because any kid who has a chance to slap an adult and get away with it's going to try. You know, that's just being a child.
5: I mean, um, that is true.
4: Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, again, Lachman claims a lot that she like deeply loves the poor and the lower class. I I don't see any actual documented evidence of that uh, at all. And the fact that even he is like, yeah, she would slap around the servants makes me (laughs) wonder maybe she wasn't playing with the servant kids just because they had to do what she told them because she's the noble girl. I don't know.
5: I do appreciate that he that he left it in anyways, even though it directly undermines his point. I'm like, okay, not the worst journalism, but I mean, the logical thing to do would be to just simply omit that. But yeah, I uh, mean, like,
4: like all of these by people who write about Blavatsky, he's like enthralled by her, but there's a, there's so much shady shit. She does like, he can't keep it out. So there's these moments where you can tell, like he just, he has to include something negative about her, even though it hurts him. (laughs) Um, anyway it's very funny all of these books about Blavatsky are a little like that Um, so there is some ample evidence that she was kind of a a pretty what I would call a fun kid the most detailed stories about her it makes her sound like the proto Wednesday Adams right like she she's <laughs> she's constantly hearing spirits and ghosts the the family manor like that she grows up on there's this subterranean basement system that she spends her time exploring she's mm-hmm. often found down there by manservants, like sleepwalking or talking to invisible companions so like See, servants will find her wandering the, the catacombs talking to ghosts yeah that's dope this that's is a cool the kid
5: shit I like yeah. that is
4: um ugh she man. she frequently played with beings no one else could see, who she called the hunchbacks, and sometimes she would threaten <laughs> other kids to like sick her invisible friends on them if they didn't do what she said. Um,
5: and I bet they totally believed. Oh man, witchy yeah. kids are so funny. She does
4: sound pretty cool.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a great use of of uh, child ghost power. That fucking rocks.
4: Absolutely. Her sister later recalled, quote, Helena used to dream aloud and tell us of her visions, evidently clear, vivid, and as palpable as life to her. It was her delight to gather around herself a party of us younger children at twilight, and after taking us into the large dark museum to hold us there, spellbound, with her weird stories. Then she narrated to us the most inconceivable tales about herself, the most unheard of adventures, of which she was the heroine every night, as she explained. So she's like telling them lies about going on adventures with her. I was in the, I got taken by like a spirit to this place, and like I had to do this, and you know fought this other spirit or whatever. Like she's, you know what, you know what Helena Blavatsky really would have thrived with is 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 some friends to play D and D with when she was like eleven.
5: It does, it just yeah, it's it's a big imagination kid thing, and it just sounds like she didn't have anyone matching that level of imagination around her which just means that you'll be weird. When a she finally
4: gets it it's going to be with adults. But like also this is a period in mm, which if you're into not, that there's not like a fictional outlet. Like today a
5: right. lot of
4: the bad stuff maybe wouldn't have happened. Maybe she would have gotten really into fan fiction and eventually started writing around shit um and stuff like
5: Well, I think it's but, interesting cuz her mom was a novelist. So you exactly, would think that there yeah. would have been that like baseline of like hey, write some of this shit down, you know? There's
4: bits of that happening here, but especially like it's this. I mean, again, we're kind of like in the period where like Mary Shelley's going to invent the concept of science fiction. So there's not a lot of there's not a ton of role models in terms of like taking your weird dreams about ghosts and spirits and turning it into a mythology. Um, This is a little early for that.
5: Learning that Mary Shelley lost her virginity against her mother's own grave was really just like. I think maybe the highlight of my twenty twenty two. So we'll far. we'll
4: we'll we'll do Mary Shelley in Behind the Ladies Who Rocked. Um Yeah.
5: Behind <laughs> behind the unimpeachable women. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. God, sorry, so, so, so okay, badass. so she's, she's, yeah, so that's she's the fucking coolest. She's thing I've making heard. up <laughs>
4: stories about spirits and ghosts hanging out in the catacombs, scaring kids. Um, pretty dope. So while she's living with her grandparents, and this is in a town on the border of Russia and Kazakhstan, uh, she she claims. Now we're getting into the things that I don't think happened. She claims during this period she di- discovered her great grandfather's massive occult library. Um, now, I want to read you how one reasonably credible account written for an unpronounceable Polish magazine by Tomasz Stawasinski describes it. Okay. Quote, there she found hundreds of decaying books by the 16th and 17th century masters of alchemy and hermetic philosophy, such as Paracelsus, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, and Heinrich Kunrath. Helena's great grandfather, a high-ranked Freemason who, in the 1770s, was initiated into the Rosicrucian mysteries, selected the books for his the collection with meticulous now's? care. We're talking about that. Selected the, the Rosa books for his Rosicrucian co- yes, mysteries. Yes, we'll talk about it. Okay. selected okay. the books for his collection with meticulous care Helena devoured them with passion and it wasn't long until she became an expert in the field of occultism the only mm-hmm. other person she could tell about her spiritual adventures was Prince Alexander Golitsyn a colorful character and a frequent guest at Helena's grandparents' house Golitsyn was a Freemason and a practicing mage whose search for ancient occult secrets had led him to travel to Greece, Iran, India, Egypt and numerous other places we don't know much about his relationship with Helena but without doubt it is Golitsyn who instilled the yearning for faraway travels in her? Helena wanted to seek out the unknown, the magical, the mysterious. Now, there is a lot going on in those paragraphs. So number that one,
5: is. <sighs> Yes, Sorry, she's hanging yeah, out yeah, her, I'm, I'm her, her, as like me. a
4: fifteen-year-old girl. Her best friend is a prince wizard, um, the wizard <laughs> prince Galitzin, look, which is look, pretty cool.
5: <laughs> that's again very cool. There is it. It. I know that Blavatsky goes in a wildly different direction, but it's like I don't know. Just like imaginative kids creating, going on to create uh, controversial religions huge in this time because that was also well, how spiritualism started was with like and two sisters playing a prank yeah, oh yeah we're getting they to were that fucking too bored. like yeah but like
4: so Glitzen is a legitimately interesting guy he he was in the circle of a lot of major masonic and spiritual proto gurus in it in the day one of his good friends was a christian mystic named carl von eckerthausen um who was like pri- like one of the major dudes who inspired alistair crowley um, again, Crowley okay. is like a generation later, basically. So that's yeah. the set that Helena is hanging out with as like a teenage girl. These weirdo occultists who are like a generation back from Crowley. Um, now, Golitsyn's circle of dudes are all just super obsessed with secret societies. Uh, Eckerthausen wrote uh, about a secret interior church, and they were all very into the Rosicrucians. Now, you had a reaction to that. You, probably you, you don't know who the Rosicrucians are, right?
5: I don't know who the Rosicrucians are, but I the need most, to know.
4: The the first thing to know about them is that they didn't exist. Probably didn't exist. So when she claims her great-grandfather was one, that's her myth-making, right? But I'm going to quote again from Stolizinski about the Rosicrucians. In 1612, in the German city of Kassel, an anonymous brochure was published. It was a manifesto of the Rosicrucian order, an organization nobody had ever heard of before. The manifesto claimed that medieval occultist Christian Rosencroy had founded an order that gave its members access to the universal mystical truth about human nature and the ways of the world. Two years later, another manifesto was released called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosencroy. Rosencroy, it's Kruz, Rousenkreutz, I don't know, Uh, R-O-S-E-N-K-R-E-U-T-Z. I don't know. Rose how. LaCroix. Rosencroix, Yeah, Rose LaCroix, the hero of the story, is presented as Hermes Trismegistus, uh, a god of Hellenic and oh Egyptian god. origin. Hermes this is getting Trim- heady,
5: Robert. This yeah. is getting pretty heady. So this heady. fucking
4: Hermes is the alleged author of the Emerald Tablet, which is like an, a European uh, alchemical text um, and god. definitely like a, a central mystic document of the Renaissance era. Um uh-huh. and both of those books had been written by a guy named Johann Andrea uh, who was a uh-huh. writer, a mathematician, a theologist, and a kabbalist. Um so the history of the Rosicrucian order and its founder were like b- b- books written by this the by by Johann Andre, this like mystic theologist and kabbalist who like invents okay. this guy Rosencroy who isn't real and a mysterious order. It's like it's not it's it's a it's a it's i don't know if it's a prank cuz i don't know the degree to which this guy doesn't no, believe but I mean, he, like writes a fake too... manifesto that he that he he credits to a guy who doesn't exist who's based in part on like hellenic and egyptian mythological figures um, it's a
5: little too it's a little bit uh too calculated to be classified as a prank like, yeah so basically yeah. in
4: 1612 this like rosicrucian manifesto gets like posted up in germany and again there's not Real Rosicrucians, as far as anyone's ever been able to prove, but because this thing it gets goes kind of viral, this like manifesto being published, they become like a conspiracy theory, right? Like people are like, "Oh, the Rosicrucians are behind this or that. They're the secret order, and they have all this influence here and this influence here." And um, is this like a
5: popular belief, or is it kind yes, of a little yes. more esoteric? The okay.
4: Rosicruc p- dudes are fucking writing conspiracy theories about the Rosicrucians um, into the 21st century. Um, it's what a, a it, it goes very viral, so. Helena is hanging out with dudes who are super into the idea of the Rosicrucians in this period with occultists. And she has another entry point um, into the, uh, <laughs> weird occult conspiracy theories from the 17th century. Um, anyway, so sorry, she has another entry point into kind of like occult conspiracy culture, which are the books of her favorite author, Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Uh, now, this guy... Number one, her mom had translated a number of this dude's books into Russia. This is like one of her mom's side jobs. Mm-hmm. Bulwer Lytton publishes a very famous book in 1871 titled "The Coming Race." Now it's about an underground master the race. The Coming just, Race? Yeah, yeah, the Coming Race, baby, the coming, coming into a hero.
5: Yeah. I've watched that one.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's like the Great American Bake Off, but. Less horny. So, <clears throat> the coming race is about an underground master race who have a secret energy called vril that they use to like. It's their kind of a occult electricity almost. Um, and yeah, this book it's not. Bulwer-Lytton, obviously, this is published in 1871, not a Nazi. I don't even think he's particularly a white supremacist, but his book is going to become extremely influential to the weirdest kind of Nazis. Nazis love talking about Vril today um, and secret underground Nazi bases in the Arctic. All of that has its origin point in Bulwer-Lytton's The Coming Race. Um, So... Bulwer is a, or Edward Bulwer-Lytton is a very popular author. His books have been translated again. His, Helena's mom translate them when she's a little girl. Um, and one of the books that Helena would have grown up loving from this guy is Zanoni, which is about a secret order of Rosicrucians who had psychic powers and lived forever. This is probably why Helena later claimed that her great-grandfather had been a Rosicrucian, because she loves these books as a kid, and she wants to, like, tie herself and her family to them so that she can claim to have some connection with these, like, Rosicrucians from her favorite book that become part of her, like conspiratorial belief system about the world. Um, right. It's like, a, it's, she's making her own occult superhero origin story, right? By tying herself. and like, no, my grandfather was with the Rosicrucians and like, you know, these, these fiction books by Bulwer-Lytton aren't fiction. They're him telling the real story, but he has to keep it secret because it's like a conspiracy, you know?
5: God, I mean, this is such fantasy kid behavior. Yeah. Still, still. I I mean, it's like,
4: there's variants of this, this basic art, like the, a lot of secret knowledge conspiracy grifters in the modern era have similar Mm -hmm. stories. Bill Cooper, who's the father of modern conspiracy theories, the first Alex Jones. Yes. His whole backstory is that like he, when he was working at the Pentagon, he snuck into his boss's file cabinet and he like saw Mm -hmm. evidence of all the conspiracies he would spend the rest of his life talking about. Keith Raniere Mm -hmm. claimed that he had like interviewed all of the most successful people in the world and had like synthesized the secret information about how to have success from their backgrounds and stuff, right? This is like- well-trod guru grifter ground, the idea that, like, at some point as a younger person, you came across like the font of all secret knowledge. And so you got it directly from the source and you can't show anyone else for like whatever reason, right? You don't have it anymore, but you remember it all and that's why they should listen to you. Um, See, okay.
5: So that, that brings up an interesting point too, which is like, it's not, yeah, it's not just like fantasy fan behavior because most fantasy fans don't have the access and like wealth to, to take it as far as what you just described and like yeah. what Blavatsky would have had access to. It's like, Oh yeah, yeah you can like try to a- attempt to make it happen. Cause you have more influence and power and money and all that shit. Yeah.
4: And this brings us to the last well-documented part of her early life, her marriage at age 17, just like her mom to a middle-aged ass man named Nikifor Blavatsky. He was the vice governor of Erevan uh, in modern day and also within day Armenia. Um, like I think today, it's the capital of Armenia. So he's like he's like the second guy in command of basically that of of, of Russian like Russia controlled Armenia in the period. Okay. Um, of their marriage, Lochman writes, "Quote." One story is that she did so to spite her governess, who said that no man would have so unruly, ill-tempered, and unpredictable a woman for a wife, not even the old gentleman she had recently taunted and laughed at so much. Faced with such a challenge, the teenaged uh, Blavatsky cast her spell, and her plumeless raven was quickly netted. Another story is that hearing of the plan to run away with Prince Golitsyn, the family felt duty-bound to protect her honor, and its own, and hastily shanghaied the old, by their standards, Nikephor, into making an honest woman of her. A third possibility is that that she married Nikephor out of anger at her father, who had recently remarried to a Countess von Lang. Yet Blavatsky herself tells a different story. Plint, Prince Galitzin, it seems, wasn't the only one who took her mystical passion seriously. In the letter to her friend, Prince Ale- Alexander, I'm not going to try to pronounce that last name, mentioned earlier, <laughs> she wrote, Do you know why I married an old Blavatsky? Because whereas all the young men laughed at my magical superstitions, he believed in them. She explained that her suitor had so often talked to me about the sorcerers of Erevan or the mysterious science of the Kurds and the Persians that I took him in order to use him as a latchkey to the ladder. Right? Hmm. So, number one, there's a a myth that like – or some people will argue she and Prince Golitsyn had like a thing, which by the way would have been him – Molesting her because she would have been like sixteen, but whatever. I was saying, um, yeah. That's, that her family
5: very statutory m-
4: marries her off to another middle-aged man in order to get her away from this 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 prince. Um, she uh-huh. claims that no, I took advantage of this guy. I married him because I wanted to get over to like these these Armenian and these Kurdish and Persian mystics, and he was a powerful man in that area, and I knew he would like open the door to me getting into there. I actually think she's probably telling the truth about that. She has this guy kind of wrapped around her finger for most yeah. of the time that he's alive. Um, I don't have trouble believing that she, this was a calculated move on her behalf. She's a, he's good at that. Um, yeah. And obviously you're a fucking 17 year old Russian noble girl in this period of time. You don't want to grow up like your mom did, married to some like miserable ass fucking soldier dude. If you want to take mm-hmm. some autonomy in your life, you have to scheme a bit, right? So maybe that's right. what she does. Um, now Madame Blavatsky as she becomes known later would claim for the rest of her life that quote I never was his wife by which she means that the marriage was never consummated they did not fuck this I is a topic see. of heavy debate, okay. which I see no reason to wait. Into. The two biographers that <laughs> I, I, yeah.
5: Hate, I mean, of course, the biographies who are followers and fans of hers are going <laughs> to want to heavily speculate about uh, who well, and it, when she was fucking, Ugh, exhausting. It, it, Sorry. it
4: is, we will talk about it more because it is relevant because a big part of the religion she makes is like aestheticism and a lot of it involves yes. sex denial. And there's right. credible allegations that like, well, she was fucking the whole time. And obviously that does matter if mm, you're like right, because, starting there was the
5: celibacy thing. Right. Yes.
4: Um, Anyway, this is a topic of debate. Gary Lockman just takes it as like, uh, takes her word for it. It's like, no, she was celibate. Uh, She might even have been, Lockman kind of described her as possibly even asexual. Um, Meanwhile, the other biographer I use for this, Marion Mead, who is, more, both way more into Wu, she describes herself as like a psi practitioner with psi powers, but also a much more critical biographer of Blavatsky. Um, Interesting. We'll, we'll note that she has two, at least two husbands. At one point, she has two husbands at the same time, I should say. Uh, mm-hmm. She has numerous lovers. She may have had some kids. Um and I that mean, basically she fucks. She fucks. The, <laughs> she, she, she fucks. And one of the yeah. fun things is that, like, later again, later in her life, when she's a guru, sorry to skip ahead a little bit, but she gets like a doctor's. Uh, to examine her her bits and the doctor's like it doesn't look like you've had a kid and she takes that little bit and she strong arms him into writing a note that says quote I hereby certify that Madame Blavatsky has never been pregnant for a, with a child and so consequently can never have had a child and then she she uses this note to claim that also she's a virgin even though that's not really what the doctor says but she like gets a doctor to write something and then like uses that as takes part of it her out evidence of context. that she's okay exactly, that is
5: kind yeah. of funny that is kind it's of funny, funny. Uh, I do. I mean, it's like any, any like information about how doctors treated vaginas at this time is just like, so hysterically wrong. Like this was like the same time where you could have
4: possible that like, she had that doctor looking at her foot and he was like, this seems like a vagina to me. I'm a man (laughs) in the 1870s.
5: (laughs) Men in the 1870s, you could be like, okay, like you can, examine me but the lights have to be off like and then you're like okay ghosts are coming out of my vagina and yeah. if you don't believe me um you hate women it's the best it's the best yeah i love it's it it's a
4: good time to be a we gotta bring it back, or a vagina so for her part blavatsky claimed quote never physically speaking has there ever existed a girl or woman colder than i i had a volcano when <laughs> constant eruption in my brain and a glacier at the foot of the mountain okay so there you go. that's kind asexual of a sexual icon I, Helena Blavatsky
5: I've had um, I've had ex-boyfriends who have said similar things about me
4: mm-hmm, yeah um, <laughs> uh, so again the two the, the two arguments here either she was basically asexual or she was fucking constantly um, okay. I don't know the truth uh, but there's a lot of fun stories. So uh, she was about to hit the world like a goddamn bomb, right? She's, she's uh, basically an adult. She she's wants to get out there and travel to all the different mystical centers of the world, but she has to do one thing first, Jamie and that's get away wow. from her dork-ass nerd of a husband, right? Yes. Can't have that yeah. dude hanging around. Um, <laughs> so she claims that, like, she warned her husband she, he was making a big mistake before the wedding and begged him to talk. She escaped before the wedding briefly and then got caught. Um and after they were married wow. she escapes a, a couple more a times. What a fun
5: indication of things yeah. to come when you try There's to flee the scene of your own wedding. <laughs> yeah, and right gaslight before your their honeymoon. husband into not doing it. Yeah.
4: Yeah, right before their honeymoon she like bribes some Kurdish warriors to smuggle her out and she gets caught. Um I think she might have God. made it to Iran. Um, but I hate yes, that she, she was like put in
5: this position, but I love her tactics to not she do is, it. it.
4: It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. It's, she's like she's she, like bribing these like nomadic warriors to like help her escape and like getting caught, and it's this it's this she's whole
5: stealing. She's like dealing with misogyny yeah. with a real dramatic flair. It's she is. She wild. is
4: it's, it's pretty, pretty wild stuff. Uh, so <laughs> she gets caught again for a while. She's under constant guard in her husband's palace, uh, but uh-huh. Helena keeps her focus. And she eventually, yeah, she escapes to Tiflis in Georgia where she gets caught again. And her husband sends her back to her family so that they can send her and her servants to St. Petersburg to try to like keep a lock on her while they figure out what to do about her. Um. Mm-hmm. So like she's basically a going, supposed to be traveling with her servants to St. Petersburg to be like locked up somewhere until they can break her spirit. But while she's on her way back home, she bribes the captain of an English boat to help her. And with the help of an escape kayak, she kayaks to safety, evading her servants and like gets on this <sighs> boat and gets taken to Constantinople. Um, this is cool. And frees herself. Like, I know. Is isn't cool. that dope? That's a pretty cool story. This
5: is Cool. This yeah. is goddamn. And it's like, I know where the story's going, mm-hmm. but I didn't know these details, yeah. and they're all cool.
4: And that's dope as hell. And that's where we're going to end for today. Elena Blavatsky okay. has escaped on a kayak to Constantinople, <laughs> which is pretty cool. I mean, she kayaks to a boat and that takes her to Constantinople, but still
5: that's pretty cool. Really impressive.
4: Mm-hmm. All right, Jamie. Yeah. Have you ever had to kayak away from a bad marriage?
5: No, I've, I've kayaked towards a bad relationship. Ah, <laughs> Yeah, baby.
4: <laughs> um, it, is the, it is Have you? ultimate. Huh? Have you I ever have, had to
5: paddle away?
4: I have had, I've had, I've had some adventures while kayaking that involved a sunken kayak. Um, and I've definitely had some, some strenuous arguments while kayaking with a partner. Ooh.
5: Um, oh, no. I don't
4: like kayaking. I'm going to be honest with you. Not a big fan. So, Sorry, I
5: got so upset about your kayaking anecdote that I yeah, I left.
4: Yeah, you have you have a tattoo of a kayak on your bicep that says
5: forever. <laughs> uh, yeah, it says "Do not tread on me." Right <laughs> before you like, came
4: in this morning, you were drilling holes in canoes um, mm-hmm.
5: because
4: kayakers hate canoeists.
5: Yeah. I mean you don't feel like you're in a, a safe womb like space in a canoe. I that's like right. to feel like so I'm being born up. when I get out of the little boat, okay?
4: That's that's right, that's right. Like like Jim Carrey in the second uh Ace Ventura movie.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Where is this going? Yes, exactly. exactly. You wanna plug your shit? Yeah, uh, I guess that the best plug for this is, is Listen to Ghost Church. It's the limited series I just finished uh, that is Blavatsky Adjacent, uh, which I think will become uh, clearer in the next episode, but it's about American spiritualism and a bunch of time I spent with uh, some psychics and mediums in Central Florida. Robert's in it. Paul Left-Comkins is in it. Sophie produced it. Ian edited it. It's just it's just a, a, a cool zone jamboree, and uh, it's all – Every Episode is out now, so you can listen to all of it. And if yeah. you, and then and follow you, me on Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> uh, yeah. that if you want. If follow you don't Jamie. listen to Ghost Church, it personally hurts my feelings.
4: Yeah, if you don't listen to yeah. Ghost Church, I will find you and I will put your children on the Blue Apron Island where they'll be hunted by Elon Musk for food.
5: yeah it's elon musk and all of his his kids go somebody's listening with
4: his kid their kids right now and i want you to know children that was a threat wow your parents better (laughs) listen to ghost church
5: i feel look it's it's high it's high octane shit i just got i do it i i would just i i still cut and check apple podcast reviews sometimes and i checked uh i checked them and i i had one that said uh I liked the whole show, but I'm going to stop listening now because uh, Jamie wants the Supreme Court to be abolished. But good. they still gave me four stars. <laughs> I just well, lost that's one good. star I mean, for wanting right right to though. Incredibly based, I think. <laughs>
3: Look, yeah, I, I was like, I, you
5: know, that's pretty fair and balanced.
4: <laughs> yeah, I have to give credit where it's due. Look, they, they understand that this isn't the content for them, but they're not going to punish your show for it.
5: They're like, "Look, Incredible. I enjoyed the whole show, but we have we have a personal disagreement and I have to dock you a star." I'm like, "All right, you know what? Yeah. Thanks. Fair. Look, you know what? Good for you. Good for Good them. For Good for them.
3: Right Rug Flooring.